Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Last Saturday, we saw the nationwide moratorium on evictions lapse. But just a few days later on Tuesday, we saw the CDC step in and provide an extension for those that live in counties experiencing high or substantial community spread of the COVID-19 virus. This has led to a lot of confusion and worry among those at risk of being evicted. For some, it was already a little too late. For more on this last-minute eviction ban extension, we'll speak to Abba Batarai, business reporter at the Washington Post. As you said, the moratorium lapsed on Saturday, and that set off a domino effect of property managers and landlords who sort of moved quickly to evict people as quickly as they could. And we've heard from a number of sheriff's departments around the country that those evictions began Monday. And we spoke to people who were evicted Monday and yesterday before the CDC stepped in and announced this new extension. But like you said, it's very confusing. It does cover most of the country, about 80% of the country's population. But figuring out exactly which counties are included and which aren't sort of sent a lot of people in a scramble last night. I've been speaking with a number of people who were facing eviction and were sort of just kind of waiting on pins and needles, wondering when that knock was going to come on the door, when they were going to actually have to leave. And then this introduced a new layer of doubt and uncertainty. And, And even the ones who know that they're spared for now until August 3rd, they say they feel temporary relief, but they still know what's coming. And this is sort of delaying for them. Right, exactly. So yeah, it's that small window, Monday, Tuesday, and even into Wednesday, maybe that things that had already been set in motion, those evictions were starting to be carried out. I think you mentioned, I think that the ban will expire on October 3rd, this new one that was set by the CDC. So we'll see what happens there. But for a number of how many people have fallen behind, I think uh, according to Moody's data that we got, more than 6 million renters have fallen behind on rent. So that's a lot of people that you know, might be falling into this area of being in danger of being evicted. Absolutely. And it's also important to point out that evictions have still been happening during the moratorium. There's been a federal ban, but, you know, there have been loopholes that landlords have been able to use. Maybe they're not getting somebody for non-payment of rent, but they're finding other reasons to evict them. Or they're finding things that aren't necessarily COVID related and aren't included in the guidelines. Even in cases where people were being evicted for rent reasons, very COVID related, it was up to the renters to go to the judge and explain that they shouldn't be evicted at this time because of the federal moratorium. And so there were just many layers of confusion. And we did speak to a number of people who had been evicted in the past year, despite the moratorium. Obviously, it's a stressful time for a lot of people, the renters especially, but also the landlords who you know need to run their businesses and pay their bills. Is there relief for landlords at all? Do, can they apply for some type of relief or, or is all this just affecting renters, basically? There are a number of different programs and Congress itself has set aside $50 billion to help renters sort of pay back their landlords. So there are multiple avenues that landlords can use. Um, and a lot of renters said that their landlords had been working with them to find federal and local programs they could use to get this money. But that money has been very slow to filter down to people. My colleagues recently found that only 12% of the $25 billion set aside by Congress in December has been dispersed. And so 88% of that billions of dollars is just still sitting there and could be used to pay back a lot of this rent that people are struggling with. 
as I mentioned, stressful time for these people who, you know, might have gotten this reprieve right now, but they know it's just a matter of time. You know, if they haven't gotten caught and been able to catch back up on some of those payments, they're not going to be able to do it by October. It seems like some of these people are owing a few thousand dollars in back rent. Share a couple of the stories, if you could, of people that you uh, spoke to and, and their fears with all this. You know, almost everybody that I talked to, I talked to maybe a dozen people, almost everybody said that things were going relatively well for them. You know, they were doing okay during most of the pandemic, but it was one thing that sort of set them behind. One person said it was a $500 electricity bill this summer that meant that they couldn't pay their rent and things just kind of spiraled from there. Another said he and his mother-in-law got sick with COVID in July and couldn't go to work anymore. And that's what set them off. One woman I talked to, an 80-year-old woman in Mesa, Arizona, said she is on the verge of being evicted. She's already gotten her eviction notice because she didn't receive her social security check in July. For some reason, it just didn't drop in her bank account. And that meant she couldn't pay her rent. So now she's put all of her stuff in a storage unit and is trying to find someplace else to live. And that kind of illustrates, you know, some of the struggle here, too, is that Even people who haven't physically been evicted yet have been living with this looming over them and they've been making plans. Many of them say they've already started to look for apartments and it's really difficult. Rents have shot up in the last year and there's sort of this huge surge of people who are looking for affordable places right now. So it's very difficult to find anything. And this woman that I just mentioned, she has her stuff in storage. And so she doesn't really care that there's an eviction moratorium. She knows she still needs to get out of there as quickly as she can. And so that's the reality for a lot of people on the ground. A lot of uncertainty for a lot of people in the United States, as I mentioned, six million people that have fallen behind on rent. So we'll see what happens with all of this. Abba Batarai, business reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, we also got a new study looking at the effects of children's exposure to Disney princesses. There's been a debate that has persisted that says being exposed to princess culture can negatively impact gender stereotypes in both boys and girls. In the first phase of the study, they found out that boys and girls with high engagement with Disney princesses were associated with more female stereotypical behavior. However, when researchers caught up with those kids five years later, the story was not the same. For more on the Great Princess Debate, we'll speak to Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Yeah, there's been um, a debate among academics for many years as to how young children are affected by the gender portrayals, in, particularly in Disney princess films. And one researcher a few years ago interviewed preschoolers, um, and she kind of broke it out among preschoolers who were really heavily into the Disney princess films and who played a lot with Disney princess related toys and merchandise and others who are not. And what she found at that time was that these four and five year old children who were really into princesses at that time, a year later, they held more kind of stereotypical gender roles and stereotypical kind of views based on the way they played and answers to some questions. And that fueled a lot of headlines that kind of suggested that maybe uh, too much exposure to the storylines of some of the classic Disney films might be kind of entrenching these stereotypical gender roles and ideas in children. Um, But she followed up with those same kids five years later, um, and she said she was expecting to find that those same sort of stereotypical views about gender roles would, would still be present for those same kids who were really into the Disney princess culture. And she also expected that she might find uh, that they would have negative body image associated with having watched 
a lot of films that tend to portray these princesses as very, you know, thin and very feminine. But her findings surprised her when she went back to these kids. She found that they were, in fact, had more sort of egalitarian views about gender roles at age 10 than they had um, when they were younger. And that it actually they didn't really tend to have any negative body images. And in fact, some of the lower income children in the study um, were reporting a more positive body image. So uh, that, that really kind of changed the outlook on the effect of uh, exposure to Disney princesses. Obviously, that's some good news, right? Uh, overexposure to something like this isn't impacting them negatively. But there's other things at play, too. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the home life, how your parents are bringing you up is also going to shape stuff. I mean, it's not going to be you're just watching Disney princesses and this is going to shape your whole worldview. And the other thing, Disney has kind of gone through an evolution with their Disney princess characters as well. You know, they're a lot tougher, independent in more recent movies. So there's a lot of stuff at play as well. There is. And, you know, I think the, the challenge with any sort of uh, study on the effect of media on, on children or even adults, for that matter, is it's really hard to tease out what um, what is shaping someone's beliefs. Is it ever purely the TV shows or the films they watch or the video games they play, uh, or the social media that they're following? Or is it all these other influences, their peers, their family? Um, so it's really hard to prove or show you know, causation and even correlation um, in some regards. So that, that's the real trick there. Um, but, you know, a lot of experts say that if you are going to watch uh, whatever it is, whether it's Disney films or something else with your children, um, it's, it's good to use that as a conversation starter and to point out if there are some, you know, uh, outdated sort of cultural norms that are portrayed in a film that you point those out to your children while you're watching with them. So they understand that that was a product of its time. And, you know, we're kind of at a different, you know, a different point of view now. And that can help them still enjoy the film and for what it is, but also understand that um, some of the messaging in in those films is, um, you know, maybe a little antiquated. Some good news then on this study, but that debate continues. There's people that aren't believing it. They're still saying that long-term this is not empowering for girls and that, uh, you know, obviously people also had some uh, issues with the study itself, saying the sample size wasn't big enough and it was, you know, narrowed down to a, a one geographic region, things like that. Exactly. So this isn't considered to be the end all be all of studies There will continue to be research in this area. And there certainly were some limitations of this particular study. Like you said, the small sample size, you know, 87 percent of the children in it were white they were all from either Utah or Oregon. So how, you know, can you really apply those findings to a broader, a more diverse population? Uh, so I think the, the debate will continue. Um, studies will continue in this area to try to understand and tease out these influences of the media that we're seeing. And, and to your earlier point, Disney for sure has been coming out with more and more films showing female characters in more independent roles that aren't, you know, waiting on a prince to come and save them. So, you know, there's that evolution going on as well. You spoke to a few parents for this article, and I'm sure you got a lot of comments, you know, to your piece as well. What have parents been saying to this study? Some parents said that they feel like this is this is good news, that it is a relief to see that maybe some of the influences that seem to be present when children were very young, you know, were outgrown by the time they, they got older, that, you know, kids have been able to develop their own independent thinking and, um, you know, seeing the influences of their parents and their and their peers as they get older. Uh, I mean, I don't know 
you know, too many people who are still wearing Disney princess costumes as adults, unless they're the cosplay <laughs> or something. But, right. uh, you know, it's it's a phase, you know, little girls that tend to grow out of it, boys too, um, can be into it and grow out of that as well. And so um, I think that the takeaway is to maybe not, not worry too much as a parent, you know, kind of let, uh, enjoy, enjoy the films and uh, for what they are. Um, but, you know, have, have those critical conversations. I, I talked to one mom who, you know, has been watching these, these classic Disney films with her three children. Her, her little girl is four and kind of really in the throes of the Disney princess uh, phase. But she's got two older sons, ages 10 and 11, or 10 and 12. And, you know, she points out some of the gender-related issues in these movies. And, and they've taken notice, too, when they've, when they've seen some of the movies. Um, so, uh, you know, I think a lot of parents just feel a little bit relieved right. that, you know, their, their kids can enjoy the movies and, and they don't have to worry yeah. too much. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next, we have an interesting story about how it's a seller's market out there. And in some cases, homeowners are flexing their muscles, trying to get the most out of selling their houses. There have been some unusual demands, such as taking all of the kitchen cabinets, some of the mid-range appliances, and even the toilets. Sometimes it's for sentimental reasons, but sometimes it's just because they can. And buyers worn out from bidding wars just accept those terms. For more on all this, we'll speak to Rhonda Kaysen, New York Times columnist and co-author of Write at Home. So as you know, if you are looking for a house, the odds are so are a dozen or more other people. So if you're a seller, when you go and list that house, if you price it right, you're going to expect, you know, you could have six, seven, ten bids and you get to take the one you want. But you also have a lot of leverage once you have that accepted offer because you know the buyer, if this deal falls through, may not find another house. So things that you may have negotiated before, you don't need to negotiate for anymore. And so if you want to take typical things like light fixtures, which are often up for grabs, you can grab those. But if you say, as one homeowner I found out about, decides they want the apple trees in the backyard, you can probably negotiate (laughs) to dig those up. (laughs) Yeah, so you're definitely right. You know, buyers right now feel like they have no choice. So what else are they going to do but bow down to the crazy demands? And the home sales prices are up. 25% this year. As you mentioned, the inventory is low. So the number of homes that are for sale are down 28%. So it's just so tough. But let's get into some of these. I'll call them fun because they're just (laughs) fun to talk about. Some of these fun and crazy demands that some people have. Uh, You mentioned in the article that somebody wanted to take all of the kitchen cabinets, which I mean, that's kind of unheard of, I think. Yes. And well, that was also a $15 million apartment. So I think it struck the buyer's agent as extraordinarily petty. The funny thing with that is that the buyers actually hated the cabinets. Apparently, they were very bespoke. They were bamboo. They were very highly stylized. And it was the one thing they didn't like about the apartment. But they certainly didn't want an apartment without cabinets at all. The sellers did agree to wait until they remodeled to take the cabinets. But the fact that they demanded them was just startling. And maybe, you know, it may have to do with a rising market because another apartment in that building sold for $2 million more for $17 million a few months later. So it's possible that during the time that they went into contract and closed, they realized that they may have been able to get more money. So that's also part of the psychology that might be in play, that even though you got a great deal, you may feel like if I'd held out, I could have gotten a better one. I'm taking my cabinets and going home, you know. <laughs> and in the end, the the uh, the buyers ended up agreeing to all of that. So, 
you mentioned the fruit trees, you know, digging up fruit trees. That was another uh, condition that somebody wanted. They wanted to take the fruit trees. The buyers were like, it's going to leave a big, ugly hole. But they agreed to that one also. <laughs> That's just nuts. Yeah. And that one, um, the sellers, I guess, heard the ch- their children had gotten the fruit trees as a gift from the grandparents. So these two fruit, these two fruit trees, I believe they're apple trees, were highly beloved. I have heard from other brokers that it's not unusual in the Hamptons for parts of the landscaping to go with the seller, that they get attached to these things. But in this case, these trees were like centerpieces of the backyard. But again, you can replace them. But it seems like part of me wonders with some of these cases is what are you going to do with the fruit trees in the next property? Will they go? Will they survive the move? Right. So, okay. So obviously some people get attached to things. Some people just want to keep the stuff that they have, but there are more reasons for it. Obviously, you know, appliances are kind of, you can put it in the agreement and and that's kind of a little bit more understandable when somebody wants to take their appliances that they bought. But a lot of times they want to take them because it's hard to get those appliances again. It's hard to go shopping for things. There's shortages. So this also plays a part into it. Yes, I actually think that does, especially with some of the appliances in more of the middle market homes. I personally actually am renovating my kitchen. I had to wait three months for my refrigerator and some things were out five months. So people are seeing normally you might take the appliances if you have a Viking stove, if you have like a very expensive appliance. But if right now, if you're moving into a new house and the previous sellers took their appliances, you may not be able to replace them. And I know in some parts of the country, in some markets, it's not uncust. It's not unusual to take appliances to begin with. But right now, you're, you know, sellers are moving in the same market that buyers are in. So they have a lot of power, but they're buyers somewhere else. So they're also on the other end of this conversation in the next transaction. Right. I mentioned the toilet at the beginning of it because it's the funniest one to me. I used to work at Home Depot and I worked with toilets and installations and things like that. I know how nasty those things can be. Why was that? Why did this one seller want to keep this toilet? Okay, but let me first tell you, this was not the only toilet. I heard of three toilet examples. Oh, no. um, <laughs> apparently, you know, there are these new smart toilets on the market and some of them are very, very expensive, thousands of dollars. It's not your typical toilet. They talk to you, they open, they light up, you know, they have a bidet, they self-clean. So in one case, a homeowner took all of her toilets. It was three toilets, I believe. And this case, this homeowner was, it was a sort of a sad story. Her husband, she and her husband had renovated their home. It was, you know, it was a, you know, a typical family home in the suburbs. It was not a, you know, this wasn't a multi-million dollar property, but her husband passed away and the toilet had been this almost like a joke in the renovation. He wanted this fancy toilet. They had, they had a, a jar that they had saved money for the toilet, even though they probably could afford the toilet. They went, it was sort of an over the top toilet. And so almost to live on, to carry on his memory, she wanted to keep the toilet. She may have felt that he would have thought that was very funny. She was the only one where she included that information in the listing. So when people came for the open house, the toilet was almost like a topic of conversation because it was a pretty cool toilet. It lit up, the the lid opened. And so the buyers were much more amenable. Nobody was offended because they understood. Rhonda Kaysen, New York Times columnist and co-author of Right at Home. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.